0: Let us turn in God's word, please, tonight to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? We have been considering the angels of God, those ministers of his which do his bidding, that carry out his pleasure, That fulfill his good and righteous will. We have been considering especially how they minister to God's people. Tonight, as we continue to think upon this topic of angelic ministry to sinners who have been saved by God's grace, we come now to the question of how do they do that? What are the characteristics and the features of angelic ministry towards the people of God. And I want to suggest to you some things. And the first that I would leave with you is that they do it generally, invisibly. They, generally speaking, are hidden and concealed whenever they carry out this service for God. And this point I want to very much stress, because I think there's a reason why they are invisible and remain invisible in the main. Now that is not to say that they never appear, that they are never seen. There are many accounts in Scripture where the angels appear, where they do manifest themselves when their ministry becomes visible. But those are exceptions. These manifestations are not the major part of their ministry to the saints. Generally, the Bible uses a word that describes them. We are unawares. We entertain angels unawares. That's a characteristic and feature of their ministry. Men are unawares of them. Unawares of what they are doing. And so these ministries of angels are invisible to us at the main. Now in our writing of church history, and in those writings, they're usually about the saints, about events, about persecution, about church growth, about revivals, reformation, so on and so forth. Many volumes that have been written about it. But you will know that it's all in the human side. It's all on what is visible, what is appearing to us in church history. A side that can be written. But we have to keep in mind that that history is not complete. Because there's an invisible side to it. There is the angelic ministry. There is the intervention of angels in the history of the church. And that can't be written until eternity, until the world to come. The angels have had an input in the history of redemption. And the Bible gives us a narrow glimpse of some aspects of that history. But we don't have the whole story. And we can't possibly have the whole story until the end of time and in the world to come. So there's no book that can be found on the earth that tells the lives of the angels who ministered to the saints there's no such a volume as one hundred great events in angelic intervention in church history. There's no such a book. There is a story that is to be told one day, but it yet has to be declared. And as I said, I think there are reasons why this is so, why the angels remain invisible. Why they conceal themselves and veil themselves, it is because they're not allowed to manifest themselves. Now, sometimes God does allow them, as I said, but generally they're not allowed to do so. They have to minister whilst we are unawares. And one reason why they may not be allowed to manifest themselves more often is that mankind would intrude more and more then into the world of angels and become more entangled in idolatrous worship and in the worship of the angels. That's the danger you see. This is not an imaginary danger. This is a real danger. Sinners tend to this, to idolatry. And Paul says concerning sinners that they change God's truth into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And they do do that. They worship cows, they worship the sun, they worship great sea creatures, they worship the creature. But imagine if angels began to manifest themselves and appear with all their great power and their angelic glory. What would man do? They'd just start to worship those creatures too. So God doesn't allow them to appear to, so that men would be drawn out to intrude into the angelic world and pray to angels and become worshippers of the angels. God would not have that. So they work, therefore, invisibly. And it is at that point that I have to sign a warning note thinking about the invisibility of the angels. I do sign this warning note in the knowledge that some Christians have erred on this subject in certain ways. And I even think that Paul, whenever he's writing this epistle, he is aware of the danger of angel worship. He is combating an error whenever he brings in this subject. The apostle is showing that Christ is greater than angels. Now, he wouldn't have to do that If there was a danger, he wouldn't have to do that if there was some error going around that was exalting angels, that was giving angels preeminence, that was bringing angels up to the level of Christ, if not above Christ. There must have been that heresy abounding in some form or shape that Paul has had to write this and to say this. The angels are not objects of trust and faith and of worship. That's what the Apostle is telling us. He's saying the angels, they worship Christ. We've already seen that in verse 6. They are not worshipped. They worship. They are not worshipped. They are ministers. They are servants. And the danger is twofold as we study the angels their powerful ministry and the wonderful help that they are to saints, there's a twofold danger. There there is a danger, first of all, of fixating on them, on being more taken up with them than with Christ. The apostle of the Hebrews does not want that. Seeing angels everywhere you know there are Christians professing Christians who are like that, they see angels everywhere. They only want to see angels. They're thinking of the angels all the time. The angels are in everything. The angels are nearly under the rocks in the fields. I'm becoming fixated about the subject of angelic ministry. Where it's coming to be on your mind all the time. Thinking the angels are watching over me. The angels are guarding me. The angels are caring for me. But the Lord doesn't want us to think like that all the time. What we should be really saying is Christ is watching over me. From time to time, we can think that, well, he's using his angels to guard us. But he's the one who's watching over us, he's the one who sends them, he's the one who is the, the Lord of the angels. We can never forget that. So we have to get the angels in the right place whenever we study them. There's a danger of focused thought upon them when we know very well that we ought to focus our thoughts on the Lord. God keeps him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him, not on the angels. It's quite interesting whenever we read there about Peter and what the angel did, all the things the angels done, we read about it there. But whenever Peter gave the account, do you see what it says in the text? He told them how the Lord had delivered him. I'm not saying he didn't mention the angels, but what I'm saying is the emphasis was on the Lord. The Lord did it. So we have to therefore keep the balance. And in the balance, God and his son are up there in the house. And the angels are much, much lower down. So never forget that balance. God and his son are in our hearts. Never the angels. The other danger is to worship them. To be tempted to pray to them. To be tempted to ask them for their help their intervention, to ask them to even pray for us, to intercede for us. Now we do believe that the angels do pray, I think that's maybe certain in our understanding that they do pray and commune with God in that way, but we we can't ask them to help us. In some forms of Judaism, and and more importantly in church history, there have been times when angels have been worshipped. That's, that's a sad fact of the matter. The era of angel worship is very old. It was around in the days of the apostles in actual fact. And as I say, this is one of the reasons Paul's writing the chapter the way that he does. And whenever you read, for example, Colossians, it becomes evident that there is a heresy going about whereby the angels are being exalted. Whereas the angels are high up there And Paul has to combat that. And he has to write about, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. There were some Christians who were intruding into the knowledge of angels, who were going beyond scripture and who were falling into fantasy land concerning the angels, as if the angels were kind of gods. And Paul had to combat that and that's why he had to say you have Christ. and him is all the fullness of God. It's all in him bodily. You don't need angels. The angels have nothing for you concerning your eternal life. It's only Christ who has all the fullness of Godhead. All the fullness of deity. And you're complete in Christ. Why does he have to keep emphasizing that? Because of this teaching on the angels coming in. That there's something more mysterious. And Gnosticism exalted angels uh, to to great heights. And so it's easy to make an unbiblical shift. To think that because angels are ministers to us and because angels help us. Therefore we can know them and experience. We can commune with them. We can ask them to help us. It's easy to make that shift in your thinking if you get deep into this world of the angels. And I know that some of the early church fathers taught it. Now, they didn't call it angel worship, but they looked on it as, you know, you could ask angels, you could ask for their intercession. And so these are errors. This is wrong. Prayer is itself an act of worship why we can ask our living brethren and sisters round about us whom we see to pray for us. We dare not ask deceased and departed saints or invisible angels who who we don't even know. How many of them are named in the Bible? Only one or two. We don't even know them. Uh, How how dare we ask them who we don't know and who are invisible to us and God keeps us unawares of them. How dare we ask them to pray for us? And so the Reformed tradition keeps us right in this matter. And we put the angels into a biblical order, a scriptural order, and we can't pray to them, we can't commune with them. We are unawares of them, and it would be dangerous to go into that realm. We know that even Satan himself can turn himself into an angel of light. Who, who would we know that are the true angels? And so we are to be guarded against this. And let no man beguile us in this matter. And we worship only Christ. There's only one rule when studying the angels. Just as there is one rule when studying the saints. And the apostle of this epistle has given us that rule. And he writes it down later on. And he writes it down in very many forms and shapes. And this is a rule. Looking on to him. Looking on to him. Not angels. Consider him. Consider him. Not angels. Consider the apostle and high priest of your profession. Not angels. Even when he says looking on to Jesus, he says that in a context where he's been talking about all the dead saints. All the dead saints in chapter eleven, all the witnesses, and he never once tells us to look on to them. He tells us to look on to Jesus, and so that's the reform teaching. We pray to Christ, we look on to Christ, we glorify Christ, who sends his angels to minister to us, and they remain invisible, and we remain unaware of them, so that we are not tempted into this area. Of idolatry. Do you remember whenever John saw the angel in the book of the Revelation, he says, When I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel. Imagine that. John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. The angel took him and said, See thou do it not. See thou do it not. And that's what you write over this this whole error of angelic worship, prayers to angels. See thou do it not. They're invisible. Just as the saints that are in glory are invisible. And we are unawares of them. And we are unawares of the angels. We and can't, we can't ask them to intercede for us. So that's the first thing about the characteristics of their service. How they do it. They do it invisibly. The second thing is that they do it with delight. They do it with delight. Now, I've already hinted at this in the last sermon. It is with joy that they attend to the saints in the ways that they do. They know that we will live together in heaven. They know that we are part of the wider family of God with them. They know that saints and angels shall sing together. And so they have joy and gladness In serving God in the midst of the family of God. They have delight in ministering to those for whom Christ suffered and died. For whom the dear Son of God came into the world to redeem with his blood. They just have joy to be participating in the service of Christ toward them. So that's one of the features of their ministry how they do it, they do it with delight to be able to help these struggling saints, to be able to intervene perhaps in their protection and their deliverance on occasions so it's just pure delight to them to help the struggling pilgrims in this world, ministering to the heirs of salvation they do it with pity and mercy I think that's something that they learn about they weren't allowed to have that when their brethren fail. No mercy for the fallen angels. How are they going to grow in mercy? How are they going to grow in pity? How are they going to learn anything of this attribute of God unless they learn it amongst us? So they do it with mercy and pity increasingly as they as they learn this as the Lord. Causes them to grow in it, because angels grow too. You know, they're not like God. Just you know, they're all there, immediately perfect, absolutely perfect. They're, they're perfect. They're not sin, sinful in any way, but but they're not absolutely perfect. They grow and grow and grow, and the knowledge of God, and become more and more like the Lord. And mercy and pity is a characteristic of their ministry. That they can exercise towards the Lord's people. They begin to feel as their Lord feels. Sinners saved by grace. It causes them joy. They can go back to heaven. And they can have rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Over the poor sinners that have repented. And so there's delight there. But there's also uh, this mercy. This pity. This kindness. The devil doesn't have it. The fallen angels never learnt it. They don't even have any mercy and pity among themselves or for themselves. There's no delight and there's no joy either. But these holy angels have it in ministering to the church of Jesus Christ. They also, we are sure, do it with power because they are mighty angels, as the Bible calls them. They have great power, they excel. In strength, the Bible says, that there is nothing like the power of an angel, greater than the power of a massive army, greater than the power of the Assyrians, greater than the power of the Russians, and the power of Nero or whatever. The angels excel in strength. They're the Lord's army. And there's no power like the army of the Lord. And the word will find that right at the end. When he comes back again with his holy angels. These mighty warriors. And so they have strength. And they have strength to restrain the demons. They have strength to hedge the people of God in the spiritual warfare. They have the power to do it. And they exercise that power in the divine providence as God leads them and guides them directs them and commands them. So they do it with power. They do it with speed as well. I think we maybe mentioned this last week as well in another context. But they get there on time. They never arrive late. They are right there at the minute that they are needed for God sends them beforehand. How long beforehand, we don't know. Probably not long because they move speedily. Because they're not affected by gravity. They don't have the same relation to matter as we do. And therefore we are sure that they do it speedily. Not omnipresent, not like the Lord in that regard. But they can get about from place to place fast. And so they're never late. And God sends them on an errand to the saints. And we are sure also that they do it with the wisdom of God. They're wise. The Bible talks about being wise like an angel. And they are wise. Very wise. They don't make any mistakes. Because the Lord has endowed them with heavenly wisdom. And whenever the Lord sends them to do a ministry, they know how to do it. And the Lord wouldn't send them otherwise if they didn't know how to do it. The Lord doesn't send them beyond their capacity beyond their abilities, he knows that they're able to do it when he sends them to do your work. And so they come and they do it with, with wisdom. And they do it righteously and justly. They don't war a warfare wickedly. They don't do anything wrong. They don't war the way the demons war and the devils war, but they war in righteousness. They war in justice. They war in the way that their king wars with his scepter of righteousness. And so we are sure that they, they minister justly the word of God. They do it righteously. And they also they do it successfully and effectually, as far as, as it is in their power to do. They don't sin, they don't fall, they don't come short. God commands them, as I say, only within their capabilities, and they are equipped for it. They never fail in their duty. They never come short in the will of God that they are to carry. It. They're not like us. You no know, thing half done, thing not done at all, thing done half-heartedly, thing done imperfectly, as all our our services vary imperfectly. They do it without success very often. But the angels are, are not like that. They have success. They have ability. They don't come short. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. And delivereth them. And deliver them all the time. If they're sent to do it, if they're sent to encamp, if they encamp the church, they deliver them. They do. They have success doesn't say the night deliver them and could not possibly deliver them. No, it, it's done. If the angels are sent to guard someone, he's guarded. If the angels are sent to send someone out of prison, he's brought out of prison. If the angels are sent to give a message to someone, they bring it. If they're sent to bring a plague, the plague comes. And it does its Destruction. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall burn thee up. They'll do it. If they have to do it, if they're called to do it, if they're appointed to do it, they will intervene. Remember Daniel in, in the den of the lions. The lions lost their appetite. They didn't open their mouths. Why did they not open their mouths? Why did they not eat Daniel up? And Barnabas says, my God sent his angel. That's what happened. The, the, the angel took their appetite away. The, the angels tied them up physically so that they didn't dare open their mouths. So that they couldn't hurt me, he said. And those angels came in time. You know, it wouldn't take those long. You know, to have Daniel Devar just thrown in. I'm sure those those lands were half starved, ready for the first human feast that would come along. That's the way it usually would be, well ready for a feast, thrown in, and whoosh, the dinner would be over just like that. But the angel wasn't time, and the angel was successful. The angels can't be late if God sends them. It would be a disaster. So they're always in time. They always work successfully and effectually and powerfully. Though we're unawares very often that it was angels that did it. They do it as unto Christ as well. How how do they minister to the saints? Well, chiefly for Jesus, their dear Lord, whom they love and adore and worship. Even the Lamb that we worship, they, they do it for him. They love him. They're his ministers, they do it for his glory, for his honor. It has to be said that they do it in unity and in harmony. They're called the Lord's host, you see. And it's a perfect army, and one of the things about an army to make it effective and effectual is it has to have harmony and unity. The angels are utterly harmonious. A complete unity, working together. Like the wheels within the wheels. That, that, that chariot that you see there in the book of Ezekiel. God is on the throne of that chariot. That chariot is running through providence. And all the clogs are running. All the wheels are running. Wheels within wheels. We can't even figure it out. But they all represent angels. The spirits in providence. Going in all the different directions. Working in God's creation. And springing forth God gloriously. Through time. Through history. So the angels are working united. All the parts in, in perfect, complete harmony with the heirs of salvation. I mean, the church looks like a, a muddled mess at time. All the heirs, belonging to different denominations, whatever. That's not the way it is amongst the angels. They're, they're never confused, they're never confounded because they have this harmony. As they do their spinning in their wheel. Another one does his spinning in his wheel. For the service of the Lord Jesus. As the Lord Jesus comes on his chariot. For his church. They do it with zeal and enthusiasm. And we're sure of that. And that's one thing you have to know about the angels. They don't have to be dragged to do this service. Oh there's a zeal and a fervency. And they do it endlessly and continually, without end. The the ministers to saints in such a way that their ministry can't be terminated. It can't be brought to an end by men or by Satan. They are like an ordinance that can't be taken away from us. They're an ever-present ordinance. You, You know that men can take very much from us. They can take our liberty from us. They can take our Bibles from us. They can take our, our voices from us. They can take our, our teachers from us, our pastors from us. They can take your ministers from you. They can take very much from you, but, but they'll never take angels from you. That continues endlessly. In prison, out of prison, the angels are there. They're, they're always present. We read in the Acts, on a couple of occasions of this. Remember the high priest in Acts chapter 5. They rose up and they took the apostles and they put them in prison. But we read the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and, and brought them forth and said, go and stand and speak in the town. The angel brought them out. And we read about Peter tonight, how the angel intervened. You see, they couldn't lock the angel outside the gate. There, were, there was a lock there. There was a gate there. There was a dungeon there. There were chains there. There were two soldiers there. But did any of them keep the angel away? Did any of them interfere with his ministry to the heirs of salvation? That's a ministry no man can stop. It's always there too, even though quite often, usually often invisible. You remember in the in the little town in Israel, the man of God, Elisha, with the army encompassing the city, with all the horses and the chariots of the Syrians. The master was asked by the servant. Master, what are we going to do? Do you see all the chariots out there? Do you see all the horses out there? Do you see all the army out there? Do you see all the soldiers? What are we going to do? And what what did Elisha do? He said, don't fear. Don't fear. And Elisha bowed his head and closed his eyes. He says, Lord, open the eyes of this young man. And after he prayed... The servant could see all the angels on the heavens, all the angelic chariots, all the angels of fire, the fiery angels. They were there. Now, didn't they didn't intervene, but they were there. They were present. The Lord says, I can call 12 legions of angels, and they'll be here in a second. They're, they're present, they're about, they're, they're continually there. And in great numbers, too, at time. And so the Lord's angels minister continually without being prevented. And they do it terribly and fearfully as far as the enemies of God are concerned. The heirs of salvation have enemies, you see. And much of the ministry of the saints is in relation to the enemies of God's people. Uh, Whenever the angels of God work in the enemies and amongst the enemies of the people of God, it's fearful. The angels can cut down the enemies of God, or cripple them, or take the wheels off their chariots, or intervene with their machinery, cause it all to go haywire and wrong. Remember how the angels of the Lord came amongst the camp of the Assyrians? They had their guards on the camp. In the outer perimeter didn't stop the angel. There was only one angel, too. I'm sure a lot were present, but it only took one angel to do the deed. One angel. The angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Syrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, a hundred and eighty five thousand souls, and they were dead corpses in the morning. Awesome, fearful, terrible, as they ministered to the heirs of salvation. And cutting down their enemies. Herod discovered the terribleness of angelic intervention. I don't even suppose we know that it would have been an angel at all, except the Holy Spirit as recorded in the book of Acts. But you remember Herod, how he spoke, he had a great or- oration, and the people, oh, he's a God, that's a God who's speaking up there. Herod liked it. And immediately the angel of the Lord smiled. I don't know the he died there immediately. Maybe he took a while to sat in the day, but that's when the angel did it. He smote him. And the thing like was that the worms eat up his bones and all his insides. And he gave up the ghost. And I think even that secular history tells us that that had an awful death. But it was an angel that did it. And oh, they're fearful. Remember they minister from the sea. And the world will find that out when they come back again. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. And they'll gather out of his kingdom all the offenders, all the enemies of the people of God. All the transgressors and all the unconverted. They'll sever them from amongst the people of God. And they'll... Cast the wicked into the furnace of fire, as it says. How the angels do that ministry, part of the ministry for the heirs of salvation, will the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Here, Now in contemplating how angels minister to saints, we see here in many respects a pattern for ourselves, don't we? pattern of ministry. We cannot worship angels, but I don't think there's any harm in following their example in some respects. Now, not, of course, in sending plagues, and cutting people off. That's not our, our ministry to do that. But in other respects, we can imitate them in their ministry. And we should learn to imitate them in their ministry. I think that's one of the reasons why God tells us so much about the angels It is that we may imitate them as they're set forth before us in Scripture. They worship Christ. So should we. They worship Christ with great heart fervency. So should we. They serve the saints. So should we. We should serve one another. They study holiness. So should we. They are holy before the Lord. And so should we be. They minister with delight, and so should we. They minister with mercy and pity, and so should we. They minister with zeal and fervency. They minister with wisdom. They minister in unity and in harmony. As a body together. And so should we. We should imitate them in these regards. I remind you then how great is the Lord's love for you as people whenever he sends such ministers to help you and to aid you. And we have to again remind you that sinners miss out on so much in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Sinners without Christ ought to reflect on the blessedness that they miss in rejecting the Savior. And this is part of the blessedness that they miss. They miss, obviously, forgiveness of sins, of the peace of God, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so much, but they also miss the blessedness of the fellowship of the angels, their help in time and their their presence in eternity. They miss that. Not only do they miss that, they have the terror of having the angels come to them in their awful power and sending them to hell. So don't be a sinner outside of Christ.